if you have not or would like a copy of Gentle and Lowly, uh, come see me after this service. I've got five here and plenty more in the back. So just wanted to make one quick note of that. With that, let's go to our Lord in prayer once more this morning. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to gather around, to sing your word together, to read your word together, to pray your word together. And now we come together to sit under the preaching and teaching of your word. God, we thank you that your word promises that it will go forth and not return void. So God, this morning we pray, Lord, for your word to go forth into our lives, to encourage us, to stir us, to strengthen us, to rebuke us, to sharpen us, to shape us. God, we pray that you will work in these ways. God, we also want to pray this morning for uh, a sister church of ours. Uh, Lord, that I, this morning we want to pray for First Baptist Church in Inglewood, just outside of Louisville, Kentucky, and their pastor, Sean Corser, as he enters his third year of service at this uh, small uh, revitalization church there in Louisville, Kentucky. God, uh, we, we thank you for uh, the great work that Sean is doing. And, and Lord, this morning, we just want to pray for him as he is uh, preaching your word. We pray, Lord, that you will uh, use it there as well. Lord, we pray that your word would not just be present here in Central City, but Lord, that it would be there uh, in Inglewood, Kentucky, as well as going forth to the ends of the earth. God, and likewise, we pray, Lord, for our brother and sister, James and Sonia Heron, our, our missionaries in partnership with the International Mission Board. God, we pray even now, Lord, with their limited time being able to go to the islands of Lake Victoria where they are serving, Lord, that you would now be preparing hearts to receive the gospel. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would be at work giving many uh, questions about why certain things happen, why death exists. And Lord, as they begin to wrestle and think of these questions, Lord, that you would put James and Sonia and others in their past to share the good news of Jesus, giving them the hope of the world. God, prepare now for this work, even before it takes place, so that hearts are ready and eager to receive the gospel. God, we do want to lift up this morning. We want to continue lifting up, I should say, of Austin, John, Scattergood, and, and Johnny and, and Lois as well. Lord, we pray for little Austin, Lord. We pray, Lord, as has got word this morning that potentially he could be coming home today or tomorrow. Lord, we praise you for that. We pray, Lord, for Johnny and Lois as they bring him home in the next day or two, Lord, just in caring for him. And we pray, Lord, for little uh Austin's uh, oxygen levels to stay where they need to be, Lord, so that he does not have to go back on oxygen as he has had to so many days in the last week and a half. God, we just pray for this little life and thank you for him. Father, we continue to pray for uh, Lois and, and Johnny, Lord, that in the midst of little sleep in these days and weeks ahead, Lord, that while they may not get a full night's sleep, Lord, that that little sleep they get would feel like a full night's rest so that they can do the things that you have called them to and parenting their other two little ones. And Lord, we just pray for them in this time. And God, again, we thank you for your goodness. God, we pray now to meet you in the pages of Scripture. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
from the summer of 2013 until the end of 2015, I found myself doing one of the lowest, least thankful jobs there is while I put myself through seminary, waiting and serving tables. That word in scripture where we see servant, deacon, all of these words, the, the language there is serving tables. That, that's where the word deacon that we use in, in the Bible and in church comes from. It's the idea of serving tables. This is what I did to pay my way through school so that I incurred no more debt. One Saturday afternoon, I'm working a double shift, and I've uh, got an older couple come in, seem very pleasant at first. They're really confused on what a good steak is because I have to give the whole spill. They're asking, we want the most flavorful steak, but the most tender steak. So I give the spill. It's like, well, that's actually a contradiction because we have our ribeye is the most flavorful, but it's also the toughest of our steaks. I, I laid it all out. Then I said, but our, our uh, filet is the most tender of our steaks. But it's not quite as flavorful as the ribeye, but it's the next in line. So they proceed to order a 16-ounce ribeye together. They, they want to split the meal, get it all out. It comes out. It's exactly like I told them. It, it's the most flavorful, but it's tough. Guess what happens? They begin to complain. I'm just, I look at them and be like, here's your sign. I told you so. Of course, I couldn't do that. And being up front with them wasn't enough. I, I waited on them. We got their order fixed. They ended up getting a filet. Comes out, it, they like it better. But then they leave on a $40 tab, and I think I maybe got two bucks on a two-hour table. That's not a lot, especially when a server maybe makes $2.15 or $0.16 in the state of Kentucky, and you don't see a dime of that, let alone a or even a penny of it, because it all goes to taxes in the state of Kentucky. It would be even worse in Illinois. But the point is, serving tables is as low as you can get in jobs-wise. Yes, there's sanitation jobs. Those are disgusting, different things like that. But you get treated like dirt being a server. Just FYI, if any of you are going out to lunch afterwards, go and tip your tables well. The Sunday church crowd is typically the worst. I experienced that as a server. Go and tip 20 plus percent. They work their tails off in doing that. Now, if they're sitting around and you can watch them, okay, give 15%. But if they're working, if they're moving, even if they take a while, serve them well. Anyway, servers will thank me for hearing that later. But the point is, I had a job to do, to serve. Even when I could look at a table and knew it was going to be bad, my call was to serve the table, to give them the best experience and service I could. Well, this morning, we look at a call to serve in a similar way, a call to serve one another. But more importantly, looking at first how Christ came to serve us. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Mark 10, beginning in verse 32. I know originally when I had planned out Mark, uh, the goal this morning was to be in Mark 11, but I decided to split chapter 10 up, and, and we're going to look here a little bit at, at Jesus coming to serve us and serving one another as well. While you're getting there, 
Jesus and, and the disciples had been traveling inward. They've been working their way out towards Jerusalem. We saw a few weeks ago that they were in Caesarea Philippi when Peter made the confession that Jesus is the Christ. They passed through Galilee where Jesus gives the second telling of his coming death and resurrection. Uh, the disciples and Jesus then came into Capernaum and the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Each step along the way were inching closer and closer to Jerusalem. In fact, where we pick up this morning, we see that they are on their way to Jerusalem. The cross is coming. Holy Week is coming in Mark. Jesus knows what's coming. And that's the context for where we're at this morning. So follow along with me there in Mark 10, verse 32, through the end of the chapter. The word of the Lord says from Mark 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise." And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink and you will be baptized. And, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. In studying and working on the sermon this week, even up until the end of yesterday, I think the main point is this. 
To be a follower of Jesus is a call to serve others as he first served us in giving his life as a ransom. Let me repeat that. To be a follower of Jesus is a call to serve others as he first served us in giving his life as a ransom. We're going to look at this in three points. Point number one, a suffering example. Point number two, a call to serve. And point number three, a cry for mercy. Let's look at point number one, a suffering example. When I was around the age of 14, I was in the field feeding cattle, and all of a sudden I found myself being chased by a bull. When that bull started to charge, luckily I was able to get to safety and out of the way. Needless to say, the next time I was around a bull, knowing what I had just experienced weeks ago, I was a little timid to say the least. I was a little hesitant. It was 3 a.m., pitch black, dark, and walking over to milk cattle, and all of a sudden I realized the bull was standing right next to me. Different bull, different field, but still. I began to pay close attention and walk timidly. Jesus knew what was coming, but notice what follows of how he walked. It says, as they were going to the road, Jesus was walking ahead of them. Instead of Jesus being surrounded by the disciples, he is walking ahead of them, knowing the cross is coming. Where I was timid and afraid of circumstances, Jesus was not. He knew what was coming as they journeyed to Jerusalem. I mean, it even says, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus walked ahead of them. He knew exactly what he was going into. And in fact, so much so, he goes on to tell them here for the third time, I'm about to be handed over. I'm about to be delivered to the scribes, the Pharisees. I'm about to be delivered over to the Gentiles to be put to death, to die. But not only that, he goes on to say there in verse 34, uh, he's going to be delivered over the Gentiles and then 34, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus is aware. He is hyper aware of the cross and its suffering that's coming. And he marches forward straight into it. He walks boldly ahead of his disciples instead of having them come up with him. They're sitting back afraid, but Jesus is walking towards it, leading the way. Why? Why? He knows what's coming. Well, ultimately, it's because he is the suffering servant who's come. He's the suffering servant, and he knows what must take place. Jesus knows that he is the Son of Man, will be delivered. Now catch the irony of that. We've already looked at it once, but I want to remind us, the Son of Man, back in Daniel 7.14, was a call that the Son of Man was coming to conquer and to be served. And yet, Jesus comes not to be served, but to serve Drop down with me to verse 45, it says, here of chapter 10. It says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came, the Son of Man, the one who will be served, came 
first to be served and to give his life as a ransom. Now, this ransom calling, this, this son of man to be delivered and suffering, again, as we've already hit on twice, is alluding to the suffering servant from Isaiah 52, verse 13, through the end of chapter 53, at the one who was coming to be crushed for our iniquities, that he would be pierced for our transgressions. Isaiah 53 even uses the same similar language. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This is what the Son of Man has come to do. This is how he's come to serve and suffer. But why? Why? Why does the Son of Man, the one who is to be served, come to serve, to give his life as a ransom? This term ransom is something we often overlook, something in the Christian faith we don't think enough about. John Stott, in his, his classic work, The Cross of Christ, writes this. If you've never read it, I suggest you get this. John Stott goes on to say, though, the imagery implies that we are held in a captivity from which only the payment of a ransom can set us free, and that the ransom is nothing less than the Messiah's own life. Our lives are forfeit. His life will be sacrificed instead. Catch the gravity of that. Jesus came to be a ransom to pay for our sins the guilt in which we owed payment for. But he didn't just die on a cross. He came to drink the full cup of God's wrath against sin. This is what goes on. Uh, we're going to double dip in this section of, of 1035 through 45 here a little bit on this call to serve. When the disciples, the sons of Zebedee in particular, James and John there in, in verse 35, it lays out, when they're asking Jesus to grant this request, uh, he, he goes on and says there in verse 37, and they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at the, your left in your glory. Jesus goes on to say in verse 38, you do not know what you were asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Of course, he goes on to say yes, but there, there is a difference in the cup that Jesus drank and the cup we drink, the cup the disciples drank. Jesus goes to the cross in order to drink God's wrath against sin for our sake. All of God's righteous judgment is being poured out on Jesus, and he takes and drinks it all in order to give himself as that ransom. Sin must be dealt with. It must be punished. It must be sentenced. And it must have blood shed. Jesus was the answer to this in giving his life as a ransom. He drinks the full cup of God's wrath as it's poured out to him there on the cross. So that we may have life and have it abundantly. Romans 5.8 goes on to tell us that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. He did all of this before we ever repented from sin and turned to trust in him. He died the righteous for the ungodly. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might have life. Psalm 75 to 8 verse 8 helps echo this. It says, 
For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. All the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Brothers and sisters, this is the language of what Christ has done on the cross in giving himself as a ransom. He is the one who goes and drinks this cup of foaming wine, well mixed, and pours poured out on him. All the wicked of the earth shall drain it down. Jesus drains all of that down in his sacrificial death on the cross. Why? Because of your sin and mine and the sin of all who would come to faith in him. He comes not to be served, but to serve in giving his life as a ransom. Something, again, we don't think enough about. Because if we did, did, we would put our eyes more on the cross, not as a symbol around our necks, but as a bloody cross it is in marveling in what Christ has done to rescue us, to make the payment for our sin. We would sing more about how depraved in sin we are and more about the glory of Christ than wanting to be built up in and of ourselves. We must be built up in what Christ has done for us. Hebrews 9, 13 through 14 goes on to tell us though. It says, For the blood of goats and bulls and sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Christ, in pouring out his life as a ransom, we're bulls and goats had to be over and over sacrificed, Jesus comes to do this once and for all for our sin. It's secure. It's done. He said, it is finished. There is no more sacrifice needed in the offering of Jesus's own life for ours. When it's done, it's done. That means all of us who have placed our faith in Christ, our salvation is secure. Just like the Sunday school lesson this morning that called us to look at Abram and his faith, that he was justified by that faith. All who have placed their faith in Jesus are now justified, declared righteous forever, without blemish, without spot. There is no question to that. If we hold to that faith in Jesus, our salvation is secure. There is no firmer foundation on which we stand than that of the blood of Christ, which was shed for us. Christian, we have hope, we have security, we have life because of that faith. Because Jesus came to serve us if Jesus had come as one to be served, then guess what? We have to earn and work our way towards salvation. But because Christ came to serve and give his life as a ransom, all we need to do is say, I believe in you, Jesus, that you died for my sins, and that I am made righteous, not through my doing, but through your blood. That's the hope we have 
in Jesus. And that's what we over and over again need to be reminded of, that Christ was the one who came to serve us, serve us. He came to give his life as the ransom for us. And when we realize this, when we begin to meditate on this truth that Jesus was a ransom, we sing songs like, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. The third verse of it, and pardon my singing. Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the Lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory graced unmeasured, love untold. When we grasp what Christ has done and look and see our redemption in it, his sacrificing atonement, when we see that he was given as that ransom, we marvel in Christ and what he's done. We can't understand service without first looking to Jesus and what he's already accomplished on the cross. We can't understand the fact of our salvation and its security without looking to the sacrificial atonement of Jesus and the cross. We can't look to the cross and miss he was our ransom with his own blood. He came to serve us. Christian, if Jesus came to serve us in giving his own life as a ransom for us, how much more will he keep us? How much more will he sustain us and strengthen us and carry us through the difficult times we go through in life? Whether it's a loved one battling sickness, whether it's a deadly disease that's killing us, whether it's the loss of a family member, all of this, Christ will sustain us. We may not see how he's doing it and what he's doing through it, but we can trust he will keep us and he will hold us fast to him. Let's see the beauty of what Christ has done in paying our ransom and know that because of that ransom, he too will keep us, hold us. But that brings us to another point. Jesus did say that the two would drink the cup he did. That he or they will take the baptism of which he did. That means, brothers and sisters, suffering will come. The cup here is described a cup uh, of drinking down in the midst of suffering. But it's not in the same way Jesus did. For Jesus did it. He drank the cup of God's judgment. We drink that same cup of hardship and suffering because we are being refined in the midst of it. We are being made more like Christ and becoming more dependent upon him. But again, our salvation is secure. We will not stand in judgment because of who we are in Christ. Our salvation is secure. There will be hardship along the way, but we can rest that the cup we drink is lessened because of what Christ has already done. And let's find hope in that. But what do we do with all of this? 
What do we do with the fact that Jesus came to serve and give his life as a ransom? And that's where I want us to look in the second point, a call to serve. Here, Jesus has just given the second or the third and final telling that he is going to die and rise again. The sons of Zebedee miss it. They come to him making a request. When when you get to glory in heaven, we want to sit both on your left and your right. We want to be right there with you in all your glory and power. We want to be the ones recognized. No wonder the ten were indignant. They were mad. It's like, who did the two of you? We're all here with him. And you want seats of power? But notice how Jesus deals with this. He, he doesn't address the indignant 12. He doesn't accuse the sons of Zebedee. There in verse 42 it says, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus goes almost like a, as cheap of a shot and, and wake up as he can get. He says, here's what the Gentiles do. In other words, don't be like them. Keep in mind, culturally, the Jews and Gentiles hate one another. They can't stand one another. They don't associate together. They don't go through each other's towns. And yet, here's what Jesus is telling. Here's how the Gentiles handle this. Don't do it. But he makes it so clear in what he follows there in verse 43. He says, But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. We've already looked at this a little bit of what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. It's to be a servant of others. To be a slave is what Jesus is now using. The lowest of low of society we're to be slave of all people to be a disciple of Jesus. So he's saying, don't lord it over them. Don't use position and power for authority and recognition and your glory. The call to lead is to serve. The call to be a disciple is to serve. But I don't want to spend a ton of time on that. What I want us to look at, though, is four ways in which we actually can carry this out of serving one another. First, gathering together. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the most primary things. And you who are here week in and week out get it. There's an importance to our gathering together. There's importance to us going deeper in relationship with one another. Because we can't serve one another if we're not present in one another's lives. We can't serve one another if we fail to assemble ourselves but it also means going deeper in those relationships. It's more than just a quick passing word of encouragement to one another. or, uh, Hey, how are you doing? You know, it's going to be a beautiful week outside. It's got to be actually having conversations with one another and then listening to how people answer those conversations. As we get to know each other and spend time, we, we need to follow up with, how does a person respond? Or like, oh, what are, what are you doing for the holidays as they come up? Oh, I'm, I'm dealing with mom and dad coming into town. Hey, I, I noticed a sense of tension there. Uh, I'd love to hear kind of like what family life's like for you. 
follow-up question with good questions, asking follow-up of what somebody's just said. This is part of getting to know each other, getting to know how they answer these things, and listening well, you will follow up with those good questions. This is part of gathering together and knowing one another. So we serve one another by gathering together, but we also serve one another by encouraging one another. And again, this is more than just as you leave, oh, you know, that was really great, or hey, I like this brief thing. Us learning to actually encourage and speak to one another. Hebrews 10.24 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Brothers and sisters, part of us walking together in love is encouraging one another. Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlop uh, co-wrote a book called The Compelling Community. They write, Encouragement is an antidote to unbelief. To encourage means to strengthen each other's faith. It means being merciful to those who doubt. It means helping each other hold the shield of faith. A commitment to encourage is a commitment to fight for faith together. Brothers and sisters, how are you encouraging other members of our church? How are you coming alongside and telling them and affirming how God has been at work in their life, how you can see the evidence of that? How are you encouraging them in the midst of them enduring hardship? Are you listening and being sympathetic to their struggles in the midst of it? One thing I've learned about our church, we're a church that loves to talk, but we need to learn to listen and learn how to speak that encouragement to one another. To speak actual encouragement where people are actually hurting. More than just giving our opinion on the matter, we need to see where each other's struggling and hurting and let one another in on that. That's what it means to encourage. It's that deliberately speaking truth to one another. Speaking those means of, this is what Christ has done. Rest in that. Hey, keep fighting the good fight. I know you're struggling. Keep fighting for that faith day in and day out because we're secure in Christ. Know that you don't have to do this alone. Brothers and sisters, again, I want to commend us on the ways we encourage one another through monetary gifts, through uh, different means of mercy ministries. We do phenomenal here. But I want to challenge us to go a step further and enter into this kind of encouragement where we speak this kind of intentional way with one another, strengthening one another's faith. I promise it will pay dividends because this is what it means to serve one another. But the other means is guarding one another. So if, if the call to encourage one another, speaking words of encouragement and, and truth to one another, reminding each other in the midst of their hardship, guarding one another is helping one another fight for faith. Hebrews 3.15 goes to tell us, it says, As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. This warning is not given to the, those outside the church. This warning is given to the Hebrew Christians who are in exile, if you all, plural, hear his, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your plural hearts. If we fail to guard one another, 
We allow brothers and sisters to have hardened hearts that harden in sin because we fail to speak truth to one another. We fail to call out one another in the midst of sin. This is why when Paul writes his really second letter of 1 Corinthians to the Corinthian church, he blasts the whole church for failing to address a brother in deep sin who took his stepmother sexually. They didn't call him out. They, in fact, rejoiced of like, oh, we're showing grace. But because they failed to speak truth to this brother, they were blasted because of their sin and foolishness. Because they didn't together work to keep each other from hardening and sin. The same is true of the church in Galatia when false teachers crept in and, and the church was just allowing all this false teaching to go and they lose the gospel. Paul writes to the Galatian church and blasts them. Like, you all together are to fight for this. Fight for truth. Fight for correct and right teaching. As the church, guard one another from these false teachers creeping in and deceiving you as a whole. This is part of loving and serving one another by guarding one another against heinous, arrogant, false teaching. To guard one another from sin consuming and hardening each other's hearts. Brothers and sisters, if we see a brother in sin, brother or sister in sin, we don't go to them and say, shame on you. Why didn't you do this right? No, that's not what this is saying in guarding one another. But going in that humility of recognizing we are all sinners, saying, brother, sister, hey, I've noticed this habit of pattern and sin in your life. Remember, Christ died for our sins. Not so that we could continue in those sins, but to run from those sins. Hey, let's talk about this issue. Let me help you fight against the sin. Let me help hold you accountable in this sin and help me along the way. Brothers and sisters, we must speak this kind of loving truth to one another because love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Loving one another is guarding one another. We serve one another as we guard one another from these false assumptions, from false teachings. We guard one another as we speak against the sin present in one another's lives. We don't bombard them with every sin like, hey, Joe over here, you've got this, 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 and this wrong. Let's, let's work on getting all these checked off. No, we, we take on one at a time, but we speak and call out those, again, in gentleness and love. Brothers and sisters, we want to be the body of Christ. We need to learn to guard one another together. Because as a church, as a local church that has assembled ourselves, part of this is we are walking together as one body. And whoever the, the lowest denominator is in that, it, that the sense of, of sin, that sin weighs the whole body down. So if we're to grow towards being mature in Christ together, we have to be laboring to care for the whole of the body not just part of the body, but the whole of the body. Let's labor to guard one another together. But the last one is a call to empty ourselves. We can't serve one another unless we are emptying ourselves. There's actually two halves to this. First, we need to empty ourselves as we learn to serve one another and realize it's not about our 
preferences. It's not about our desires, what we think works best. It can't be about us. So part of the call to empty ourselves is setting aside all these things, not seeking for the power, not seeking for the glory of ourselves, but of each other. That's part of it. That's why James and John struggle. That's why Jesus corrects them in this. Their call is not for their own power and position. It's, it's for serving others, the good of all. But even more importantly, where I want us to look at is this call of emptying ourselves is serving others and making this gospel known. Brothers and sisters, we can't serve one another apart from the gospel. We don't go and serve in order to get higher standing in our position in Christ. We go and serve because Christ first served us. He first laid down his life for us. So we go and serve others. But one of the biggest ways we serve others is by making the gospel known to them. Brothers and sisters, around Central City and Centralia, there is a great mission field. There's many who are dying daily who have never heard a true biblical gospel. They may have heard, yes, Jesus loves you, you need to believe, uh, and, and straighten up, and, and you can escape hell. But if they've never heard their need in Jesus because of their own sin, and repented of that sin and trusted in Christ, if they've never heard that message, they've not heard a biblical gospel. And we have, and we need to take this gospel, this message of hope to them. We can't say we're loving and serving others if we're failing to take this gospel out to others. Because their biggest need is the fact that they're going to stand before a Savior, before a King, before our God, and give an account for their wrongdoing. And we have the message of hope in Jesus. So let us empty ourselves in going and sharing this truth with the world, starting right in our neighborhoods. Some of you do this, and I want to continue to encourage you in this. Find creative ways of bringing others into your lives to share. Invite a neighbor over for a meal. Sit around and talk about the gospel. Invite people in to do things with you. Hey, you're going to this event. Hey, I'm going this. Why don't you join me on it? I'd love to get to know you a little bit and share the gospel along the way. If I can have a conversation with six or seven servers throughout a, a night of serving tables about the gospel in the midst of us doing about a hundred different things, I promise you we can have gospel conversations over a meal with somebody when we're not the ones serving. It's doable, but will we see the need to serve others by emptying ourselves and sharing this news with others? Brothers and sisters, we need to serve people. Why? because of what we see in our final point, a cry for mercy. Just to quickly sum this up, I know we're short on time. Bartimaeus, this blind beggar, is crying out on the road as, as they're on their way to Jerusalem. David, uh, son of David, have mercy on me. Uh, people try to silence him. They rebuke him for this. And Jesus hears it, and he calls him to himself. Look down with me at, at verse 50. Uh, or 51, and Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Keep in mind here, uh, Jesus asked the blind man just what he did the sons of Zebedee, what may I do for you? 
The sons of Zebedee ask in the sense for their own sake, for, for glory, for themselves. The blind man, Bartimaeus, is just asking, Rabbi, teacher, like giving him that recognition of who he is, let me see. Let me be restored. Let me have sight. He's asking for healing. He's trusting who Jesus is and saying, you've got power to do this. And Jesus recognizes this. It says there in 52, and Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Here a man wants to be restored to whole and does so by faith. And his faith saves him and he responds by following him. Again, this is the same call for us in serving others. It's a call based on what has already been done for us. We serve others not to earn Jesus' favor, but because we have already been ransomed by the blood of Jesus. But more importantly, we need to see no matter how much we're struggling in these areas, no matter how much we're struggling with sin, that to cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me, does not go unnoticed. Jesus hears and calls the man to himself. Whether you are here this morning and you are battling for faith and trying to figure out, I'm not sure if I want to place my faith in this Jesus or not, or whether you placed your faith in Jesus 30, 40, 50 years ago, the same truth applies. Jesus is there to hear us if we will call out to him Son of David, have mercy on me. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this means that no matter how often we have fallen short of the glory of God since Christ saved us, we can cry out, have mercy on me, Jesus. Help me. And he will hear and he welcomes us. Even as we're going to be looking at, at tonight in gentle and lowly, the very heart of Jesus is a call of gentleness and lowliness. That he is there to be yoked with us in the lowest of circumstance to carry us through. Jesus has that heart. Let's cry out in mercy to Jesus. And again, if you're battling for faith, see right now, all you need to do is cry out to Jesus. Have mercy on me. Save me, son of David. I believe in you. Place your faith there, and you will have eternal life. That is the gospel message, that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom, that we who would call out to him shall be saved. Christian, let's rest in that good news, and let's continue to tell others about it. Let's serve them in making it known. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace to us. God, we have such assurance in Christ. Father, help us to see that. Help us to rest in these promises today. And Lord, help us to go and to serve one another by reminding each other of these promises, as well as those who have yet to even hear. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.